We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and you're listening to Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between the outdoors, action sports and activism. In each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. Now, this week's guest is surfer, swimmer and academic Rebecca Olive. I first became aware of Rebecca through Moving Oceans, her research project, which is about the way recreational sport and leisure activities shape our relationships to nature. Something that I think if you listen to this, you're probably quite familiar with. Now, Rebecca explores this dynamic through the lens of ocean activities like swimming, surfing and even sailing. I'm just going to quote from a Moving Oceans website, really, which um, quite handily explains that the product is about exploring the everyday individual and community relationships we develop through surfing, swimming and other ocean lifestyle sports. Rebecca's work is about showing how and why ocean lifestyle sports help us experience such close connections with the saltwater plants, animals, geographies and climates. And there's another strand to work, this is me, I'm not quoting anymore, um, which has been about women in action and lifestyle sports and how the way women are represented in the media in these communities can have a huge influence on how it shapes women's relationships with these activities and indeed those very communities. So both subject matters, as you might imagine if you're at all familiar with the show, that are right up my boulevard and we initially started chatting on Instagram and this really must count as the most positive and wholesome in interaction I've ever had on that particular site. Rebecca listens to the podcast and whenever I put an episode out, particularly one that intersected with her own areas of research, we'd have a chat and we'd swap notes. So I was very stoked indeed to hear that she was going to be heading to the UK for a month this summer to do some work, catch up with some old friends. And uh, if her Instagram feed is anything to go by, tour most of London's iconic swim spots. So it was that I packed up the podcast kit, headed up to London as the heat wave kicked in, and headed to a shady spot in Finsbury Park where me and Rebecca sat down and recorded this nourishing and at times quite challenging conversation really. Um, This is activism as investigation about how the exchange of often niche and sometimes challenging ideas has the power to change the way we perceive these activities after all underpin type 2 and my own looking sideways podcast. Uh, and embellish our lives and like I say I assume if you listen to this that means you so yeah it's a good one this a lot of thought-provoking stuff certainly caused me to as you'll hear um, stop in my tracks and mull over a few different ways of interpreting the things that I've been observing my whole life really so thanks for that Rebecca Um, and thanks for listening hope you enjoy it Yeah, you're like actual internet friends that you meet in real life. No, I've not <laughs> had many of them, to be honest. Ah, I have loads of them. Yeah, it's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because you do end up meeting a lot of people online, don't you? You do end up like having... Because, you know, we've been chatting on Instagram now for like quite a few years, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I and, know, it's uh, funny. And, um, and developed like quite a good sort of topic do you know what I mean like there's it's almost like we pick up like uh, like the topics like over months and like big gaps like kind of real friends do so you know what yeah. I mean like so it's yeah it's nice to meet you finally <laughs> yeah in person yeah yeah so how you doing what's you, you sound like you're pretty jet lagged yeah I'm pretty jet lagged and I'm a fake it till you make it kind of person with that stuff so I'm pretending that I'm not jet lagged yeah but you can hear that I am and um I'm sleeping not much right but that's fine <laughs> fake it see fake yeah it. it's fine it's fine it's a killer though isn't it it's really hard i mean it's been i usually travel long haul at least once a year and right. for obvious reasons i haven't and it's as brutal as it ever was <laughs> possibly more so because i'm out of practice australia to the uk's shit though isn't it? it's like two days on a plane basically well i mean much. it's i think it's like two. cumulatively it's like 30 hours by the time you you know getting we and you because of the travels, like in Australia, there's queuing and, you know, so you have to be there three hours before and my yep. flight went at five in the morning. So you're there in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's not the best start, is it? No. Really? Yeah. But you got a hell of a trip planned. So you're here for a month. Yeah. 
And give me give me the rundown. Yeah, so I'm here in London and swimming every we are, day. We are in uh, Overcast Finsbury Park under yeah. a tree doing yeah, this. Under a tree. Yeah. With a little bird over there. Little, little female <laughs> blackbird saying yeah. hello. Yeah, so here in London swimming in lots of different, in the Serpentine and uh, West Reservoir and Hampstead Heath, the mixed ponds and the ladies' ponds and um, going to as many exhibitions as I can fit in and meeting lots of people and just loving being in London yeah. and really actually enjoying what a vi- uh, really this trip noticing what a vibrant city it is and how much community grassroots works happening in the city to make things happen I and mean, maybe that's because I'm in the waterways and things so I'm really noticing that but yes I'm here and then I'm going down to Cornwall to a leisure studies conference <laughs> and to go swimming down there and then up to Wales and a uh, little night in Manchester <laughs> and I think up to Lake Windermere and then I'm in Durham for another conference on qualitative research in sport Yeah, and uh, hanging out there and seeing colleagues and then I'm up in Edinburgh to see friends and meet with some colleagues up there too. That's great. Yeah. And swimming <laughs> is the theme. So you've been, you know, you've been in the Serpentine. I'm quite jealous actually because I've, I also do a lot of swimming and I, I quite often, I've got a big swim a week on Saturday actually um, down in South Devon that I've been doing a lot of training for and yeah. I always think like oh, I should go and swim in London and you know go to the Serpentine I mean I know you can't just rock up and do it but you know what no. I mean like there's so many so many great places mm. so many Lido's so many outdoor swim spots there and I, I never do really mm. um, but yeah well, but you've been yeah. getting well stuck in so how do you wangle that Serpentine invite oh yeah because it's quite a thing you can't just do that can you no I Someone who um, I got introduced to, another online person, um, they invited me as their guest. So, yeah. And then his friend invited me as a guest as well. So, we swam together and um, it was lovely. So, I do feel really lucky. Like, I'm very aware that that's really lucky. It's a great (laughs) way to see London as well, isn't it? You know, like you say, to instantly get into a little community, Mm. see the city from an unusual perspective as well is really it's great isn't it it is and it's a really different London that I've been in before because I'm really usually when I come here I'm like two galleries a day and I'm on foot across the city and just and loving that bit of it the arts and culture yeah and this time it's a really different trip in that it's totally centered around different swimming spots and so actually I'm engaged in London's nature spaces and green spaces more and I hadn't sort of done that because like in Australia we have lots of green space and, you know, it's kind of nature's the thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. As soon as, you, as soon as I get to Australia, um, you, you can sense it straight away. Like yeah. the difference in the relationship that people have with the outdoors over there. And obviously the weather's going to have a lot to do with that. But, mm. but uh, yeah, it's a tangible thing, I would say. Like, yeah. And so when I've come to Europe, like to the UK, well, the UK now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. Sore point. <laughs> <laughs> Although not for Although, everyone. Although, yeah, yeah. And Boris Day. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to see art, 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 art. And Australia's really changed since I first started visiting here a million years ago. Right. So maybe I feel a bit differently about that. But like I said to you before, whenever I come, I go and visit Turner Paintings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, you're putting me t- to shame because that's another thing I'm always I should go and, you know, because it, it is so amazing for, you know, for culture, for exhibitions, for just stuff going on, isn't it? And mm. I think when you live here like any city you sort of take it for granted a bit really it's super easy to do that Mm. and I mean I do that in the places I live but this is why I think I've really missed traveling and I'm like I sort of I'm probably talk a lot about being here and like I really want to emphasize how lucky I know I am to be here as well at this time when we're still in a pandemic like I I can't get yeah I can't get away from that every day I'm really everyone's pretending it's over yeah. Even I had it last week and even the reaction was interesting because mm. I was supposed to see friends and I thought, well, I, I better do a test. You know, it's like the, the kind of responsible thing. So and it came up positive. So I phoned my friend and I was like, yeah, I'll just test it positive. And he's like, we're well, still going to come, right? And I was like, well, probably not. No. Oh, <laughs> right. And then he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, shit, shit. You're right. You're right. You're right. I was like, uh-huh. I think everyone's kind of like slipped into this idea that it's sort of finished well i was shocked when i got here because no one wears masks no and in australia well i'm living in victoria and you still have to wear masks on public transport and in brisbane you did too so i was 
yeah, I was on the on the tube just going, oh my god, what do I do? And I was the only person wearing a mask. So then you feel weird. But I was like, uh, I don't care what these people think of me. No, not at all. Yeah, so I've been wearing a mask everywhere in the in the underground anyway. But yeah, it's totally different here. But you know, Australia had a different relationship to COVID and our international borders were blocked. You had to apply as a citizen to leave and to go back. Yeah. State borders were closed for a really long time too. And then cities were shut down. So it's, yeah. But I heard someone talking the other day, a researcher, and they were saying they tried to look back about art that was made after the Spanish flu, art and literature. Sure. And people didn't talk about it because... Really? Yeah. And I, I don't know where I heard it. So this is one of those. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. It's interesting though, because I've been thinking what is going to come because it's always a question isn't it artistically like well you know traditionally like movements have flourished after wars and Mm. and like let's just call it periods of great social upheaval like afterwards there's been there's been responses artistic responses to that in the form of like famous movements hasn't there you know whether it's like surrealism like you know like the Mm. can kind of see the societal response through art essentially so i've kind of been wondering what you're going to see you know well maybe one of the movements has been back to outdoor sport and leisure so you know i say sport but i actually mean physical activity or yeah recreation so i'll just say sport but i actually it's a shorthand word for the a re- whole variety of the, the relationship we have with it let's call yeah it. like movement practices yeah. or movement cultures or movement just movement so going for a walk and i would we can call a sport in this conversation just for ease yeah but you know we all saw it any of us who go to parks or use the beach yeah, or you really did yeah it really grew like i mean outdoor swimming really took off and surfing and you know they're kind of my things i look at but there were all these like people using parks a lot more as well so i mean that maybe that's the kind of change that we're going to see in this i mean i think the artistic practice will come and you're right it'll be interesting to see what it is but certainly there's the other effect where we're all outdoors a lot more yeah and the there's an interesting debate sparked not a mainstream debate certainly but there's a guy called nick hayes over here Mm. um trespass guy yeah yeah yeah, exactly um and i'm not i don't 100 percent agree with everything that he discusses or the way that he approaches it but he's definitely got a super interesting take on Mm. access to natural spaces and, and especially in this country because it's so owned everywhere you know and i really liked the point he made about how because there was a famous thing two years ago here when um the weather got better and you and everyone went to like the local beaches and there was like you remember the pictures and you you probably remember like Mm -hmm. the conversations that were going on all the rubbish and stuff yeah exactly and he was a bit like but that's because we funnel people to these very limited outdoor spaces in our society and people don't actually they would have driven past rivers reservoirs estates but because you're so used to like not being allowed to use that because of the way that this the country's set up mm. you know like what do you think is going to happen if you if you suddenly tell like the entire mm. population that you i I just found it quite an interesting you know it was, it was at that point where you, you kind of wondered whether the pandemic was actually going to cause people to to actually question the way that things are run and operate and i think that happened for like about six weeks <laughs> and, then, and yeah. then everyone kind of went back to the i mean i don't know i think i've noticed this is totally just anecdotal so i haven't like this is just spoken an observation. like a true uh, research fellow <laughs> yeah yeah um <laughs> But there does seem to be like a move back to unionism and and more collective action and community, like community organization that I'm just noticing and I'm noticing it in workplaces and how my friends are talking and yeah, I think there's, there's something going on. Um, Well, when you factor in the economic situation, obviously that we're now experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, 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 um, the, the train strike over here, um, and you know, the, the way that, actually everyone's really sympathetic with Mm. well not everybody but like in terms of like press and public sentiment Mm. epitomized by the way that mick lynch like the leader of that union has has had basically suddenly like a national treasure but effectively you've got a guy who is making a very common sense plain plainly spoken argument for like better working conditions and Mm. and pay you know Mm. and it's not and there's a lot of people suddenly going like, the guy's got a point here, you know, like, and, and the, even something like that subtle shift in perception. I think you're right. I think it's going to be really interesting, isn't it, to see mm. throwing a recession, which appears to be on the way. Um, and so then spaces like this one we're sitting in become more valuable. Yeah, exactly. You know, because, I mean, 
you can just come here <laughs> and sit under a tree. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's 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 a great thing, isn't it? You know, we're like you said, we're in the middle. We're literally in the middle of London, and you've got this incredible resource. Yeah, and there's like the new rivers just down here, and I was just telling you, like I walked along that yesterday to get to West Reservoir and the wetlands as well, and you know, it was so quiet, and there's there's all this kind of crap in it plastic bags and coffee cups and cans and the ducks are swimming around it and there's loads of algae but I don't know like that's life right like I don't think it didn't make it less pretty or meaningful to me that it's like that because we're in the middle of like a huge city it's it's gonna it's gonna come with the territory to some degree isn't it I think yeah and so it was just incredible like walking along there so have you planned this trip around swims sounds like you have <laughs> yeah basically are you yeah. doing the Falmouth one are you doing the one across the bay because that's around the time. oh I mean I could give it a go yeah I I haven't looked into that really because it's a conference I just had focused on that but I'm going to meet actually one of the pe- people I'll meet there is Kate Moles and she studies um outdoor swimming as well yeah so yeah she, I'm sure she'll have plans and I'm gonna hook into them <laughs> so you so the work you're doing at the minute is yeah. is about I mean, we've touched upon a couple of themes already, but it's effectively about, well, maybe explain how you define it. Like the current, because there's a couple of, we first started talking around your work around the representation of women in action sports, didn't mm-hmm. we? That was the conversation that we started having mm. off the back of a couple of episodes that I'd done and off the back of a couple of articles of yours that I'd read. So mm-hmm. maybe get to that in a little bit, but you're, you're doing something slightly different now, right? So what is it you're working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working on a project that's about how sports, sport, physical activity and leisure shape our relationships to ecologies. And my argument, so it's in the human ocean health kind of world. And so we talk a lot about, and you've had a lot of guests who talk about blue health and ocean health, um, sort of health that we take from our time in the ocean. But I'm interested on the flip side of that equation, which is how is us swimming and surfing good for the ocean in return? So I'm there's great work happening by loads of people like Eski Britton and Ronan Foley and you know that that crew are all doing amazing work on blue health and how it's good for people and why it's good for people um but I'm really interested in yeah how is it good for the place in return as in like a reciprocal relationship exactly so how is it relational not just us taking like another extractive kind of practice of what's good for my health and you know take 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 which is generally what the conversation is actually isn't it that's such an interesting point now now that you make it and obviously (laughs) that's the insight that this is based upon because it is that's so that's so interesting isn't it because you because most people that have that conversation and try to almost have the cake and eat it they're talking about how they want to preserve these environments but when they talk about and this is obviously like a massively sweeping statement but i'm sure you get the point i'm making when they talk <laughs> about it it is in terms of like what they're getting personally from that environment isn't it yeah and i think i don't think it's that i've sort of There's used a few teas been spat out i think around the <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't and i would say that all of the the researchers i've mentioned are about that reciprocal relationship it's just that you can't look at everything when you're doing this kind of work this really intense work so they're doing such good work on that that I can just look on this other side and so I guess it yeah I just started thinking about that and thinking about how good it can be for oceans and now I'm looking also at rivers and other freshwater places that are sort of lead to oceans as well right so um how it activates people to want to take better care of places. And there's loads of examples in the UK of that. And I mean, right. the premier example is Surface Against Sewage, right? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people doing really great work in, in that area. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's activated by their experience of being immersed in the problem. Yeah. So, but as you said, some of that is also about their access to the place to do the thing they want to do. And I think, like, I surf... And I love surfing and I think it's wonderful, but I'm very critical of surfing. Yeah, um, well, I was going to say there's a real crossover there, isn't there, from, <laughs> from an, a, an earlier theme of your work that we've discussed in terms of access and ownership, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of the work on surfing is really about maintaining surfers' relationships to the waves that they want to surf. Yeah. Um, now, if that activates people to do something, then that's awesome and I have no problem with that. But I'm a bit interested in taking that further about, well, what are we willing to give up for the health of the ocean? Right. What are we willing to compromise on? 
So I live in the north, well, I'm from the north coast of New South Wales and just moved from southeast Queensland and that place has been in the news a lot for shark but fatalities based on shark bites and attacks. <laughs> yeah, is that is that like Ballina Head? Is that around there? Is Ballina, that, Lennox. Yeah. Ballin, um, is, that, is that what it's called, Ballina Head? Is that the, oh, it's just called Ballina. Right. And okay. then there's Lennox Head. Punter. <laughs> That's why I'm getting confused. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that area, isn't They're it? They're next to each other. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was a number of fatalities and I'm going to get all the dates and... Well, I seem to remember it was about five, four or five years ago. It was a real thing, wasn't it? And well, even in, like, yeah, in 2020, I think there were somewhere between three and five deaths before March, basically. Right. Like, it was it was shocking. And it's really changed people's way of relating to the ocean. Yeah. And how they feel in it. And so when I grew up, it wasn't a topic of conversation, really. I mean, we'd talk about it, but not really. But now it's, like, I find myself frightened all the time in the right interesting yeah it's in my head a lot and because it's real yeah you know so this idea that oh you've got more chance of dying from a bee sting or whatever yeah i mean what i'm finding in some of my research is the surfers will say no that's for people who don't surf yeah because if you're in the water a lot you're obviously increasing your risk exactly so dramatically one of the things People respond to this in different ways. So some people want shark culls, for example. Yeah. And we've got nets and no one I've talked to is pro nets because they're such murder nets. Yeah. Um, so they're like unconscionable really. But people are generally uncomfortable with the idea of not surfing at certain times. And but that is starting to emerge as like more of a narrative of, well, maybe don't surf after rain yeah. because the risk is higher. Or maybe don't surf when you know there's a dead whale down the you know, a couple of beaches down or something because the chance is higher. Yeah. Um, maybe at certain times a year when certain kinds of fish are running, just think it through again. And that is, for me, like, I think that's pretty radical because we're so used to going, well, in Britain and in particular, you can accept pollution maybe, but where I, where I grew up, it's like, well, I can go in whenever I want. The water's clear and, yeah. you know, I should just be able to surf when I want to surf. Well, I found the Reunion Island debate, I remember so perplexing really like because over there obviously it was a real they banned surfing didn't they in the end like for, for a oh, period yeah i mean i sort of haven't looked at that well, which i, well, I no, must it, get around to it, it's just an interesting really uh, it, it, but just in terms of the response because obviously they had you know essentially short version they had a shark attack problem i'm not going to pretend to know anything about the the local issues in the reunion island like i haven't got a clue but what did what seemed to make it through was that the response to that problem was i'm pretty sure they banned surfing for a while which obviously to all the surfers because huge part of the economy you know mm. i think jeremy flores is from there isn't he like there's mm. like there's a for a lot of people that very <laughs> got a stake in the surfing world of reunion that wasn't really an option and there was people like basically advocating a mass cull of and i and i was just a bit like i just remember being quite horrified by that really because mm. i was a bit like that can't be a solution like you know for mm. our because we want to do our ultimately frivolous leisure activity mm. we're allowed to go around killing wildlife who live in the sea you know do you know what i mean like yeah, I, that's exactly the and thing I, but and i was just yeah. like ethically like wow what a what a minefield that is mm. you know like and just that was the extent of the thought process that i had around <laughs> it but it's in, you know I, I was a bit like wow that is crazy that that's the the point that debates at you either ban surfing or you kill fish you know mm. so that people can go surfing and it is interesting on this point you're talking about isn't it like how that relationship like how it changes and like mm. what you know <laughs> what right do you have to be there and how do you manage that essentially mm. yeah and what are you who are you willing to sacrifice so you can surf yeah and like i should probably also say i've never like I'll have been in the water with big sharks. Like that's definitely true. I've never seen them. I've never had an encounter with them, you yeah. know, that I'm knowingly, um, I haven't been bitten. Um, I don't, I haven't been in the water when someone's been bitten. I haven't had someone close to me bitten or, you know, die. And I think that's really important to kind of say, because maybe I'd change my mind on things. And like, I've been talking to people who have had those experiences and there's a lot of trauma that go through goes through communities based on deaths because of shark bites or, and shark attacks. And it, it happens in strange ways. So, you know, my position on that also comes from the fact that from a particular place. Yeah. I think I wouldn't change my mind, but I don't know if I would feel the same way. But 
yeah, I'm not pro-cull. Um, and some of that, though, like, I don't know the full story in Reunion Island, but I would say some of it is also cultural. And so what I'm looking at in my work is really about kind of Western cultures and European cultures around human nature relationships. And historically, we saw ourselves as above nature right. and that we had a right to treat places how we want, take what we want from them, um, kill what we wanted. Well, I guess subjugate wouldn't be too strong a word, would it? I mean, I, it, could, it could be used and lots of people would use that word. <laughs> um, maybe I wouldn't at the moment. But yeah, so we, we think we're the apex species of the planet, essentially, is probably a way to put it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really starting to get challenged. And it's a very imperial colonial mindset as well, right? So it's super sexist, it's super white supremacist, it's super imperialist. Yeah, it's like colonists bringing a couple of rabbits to Australia and... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and, and killing the population of people who live there and chopping down all the trees yeah, and, and bringing want, in cattle, which yeah, is a terrible... Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Like yeah. destroying the local ecosystem based upon your own idea about what an ecosystem should be, essentially. Yeah, and that comes from a particular way of thinking about the world. And so that's why in like other cultures, they've dealt with things a lot differently. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because obviously, like you say, the, the area you're talking about, our relationship to leisure in these environments is, is just another, another front on that conversation, isn't it? Absolutely, because when we're spending our time immersed in these ecologies yeah. where we're definitely not the apex predator right in the ocean that requires some thinking through yeah so Which i've rarely happens <laughs> yeah but we do actually like i think we do think it through like if we're feeling afraid or if we decide like i've paddled in sometimes sometimes i don't know if you've ever had it in places people talk about it, they go it feels sharky and there's a smell or they're seeing fish act in a certain way. They might not even be able to tell you exactly what's happened, that yeah. they just have this. And people talk about feeling it in their gut a lot. And then often they feel it in their gut and then they see a shark. Now, I don't know, like maybe they've felt it in their gut and not seen a shark a million times. And I'm sure that I have too. But there is this, oh, we spend a lot of time there and I think we can get attuned to an ecology and feel like something's different like something feels do you different think, do you think that's the thought just struck me though do you think that's more like a primordial thing mm. like like a kind of because like like i've done you know on the swimming thing like i swam across the hellespont once mm. right which like, and and that that was that was eerie you know it was an eerie experience like and i swam from alcatraz that was really eerie that's the only way i can describe it and yeah. like there was the Hellespot, I mean, Alcatraz was a bit different because that definitely comes with, you know, the sharky mythology. You mm. know, the first thing anyone says when you say you're going to do that is like, oh, fucking hell, there's a lot of sharks around there. You know what I mean? That's just a thing that comes with it. The Hellespont certainly isn't. You know, it's mm. like a, it's the channel between the Med and the Black Sea. But it's fucking deep. There's a mm. lot of big fish in there and it's really clear. And I was swimming that and you can see massive fucking fish like mm. cruising around you can see and it, it's eerie you know like and i've often thought the experience of being a human in in water like deep especially deep water essentially is just a, it just strike strikes you on a i use the word primordial i'll use it again like strikes you on some kind of you know inner level that mm. i wonder if that if there's a bit of that going on yeah so that's kind of what i'm looking at is i'm I claim, my claim is that it makes us feel vulnerable. It yeah. makes us feel our vulnerability. Yeah, I would totally buy that. Yeah, yeah, we are vulnerable. And like I had this moment when I started this whole project, I was swimming in my hometown and across the bay and I got, I hadn't swum in years and years and years, ocean swum, and I was in the middle of the bay. It's a long way out. And I was like, looked and went, okay, I'm equidistant from the shore. So... But if anything happens to me right now, I'm going to yeah. die. No one's getting to me. No. Like, no one's coming from the surf club. It's too far. I'm not near my pals. Oh, what What do I do? And I was like, well, you have to just keep swimming, right? Because yeah. there's no choice. And then, so that's when I sort of started thinking, like, is my fear going to keep me out of the water? Like, what's, what's more important to me? Yeah. And it hasn't kept me out of the ocean. Definitely hasn't. It's probably... Like, I don't like ocean swimming on my own. I always want to swim with people and I like the company. And yeah. Most people seem to say that. There are people who do it on their own. I, 
I don't understand. Like, I think it's amazing, but I just, that's not me. I never enjoy it. I'm always on edge. And, no, I totally understand that. Yeah. But that depth thing, like, there's all these... So, I've used sharks because it's sort of an obvious low-hanging fruit to yeah. think about fear and vulnerability. But depth, like, I, I sailed... Um, I went on this sailing trip and I wonder, I'd never been on a yacht before at, at sea and I didn't know how I was going to go with the existentialness of being away from a sh- visible shore yeah. over a very a lot of water. Again, where... If you go in, the yacht's not probably not going to find you again, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there's these vulnerabilities when it comes to the ocean. Like waves. Again, I I swam at Bondi and we dove off the rock ledge. Yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. At the, um, under the pool. Yeah, icebergs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've done that and swim, you can, and then swim across the bay and back. I've done yeah, that. And yeah. And so there's this six foot surf coming through and yeah. I was just looking going, oh man, <laughs> like, you know, and, um. I went, so what's, like, I hadn't done it before. And I went, how deep is it? And they're like, just dive shallow. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's really shallow there. Well, there's, there's rocks. It is fine. We, I saw later on other swims. but And then you have to swim out through this break. Yeah. And you just have to stay really calm and trust yourself. Yeah, but it's... Every swimming group I've talked to talks about when someone starts, people assume they can swim. And they're seeing all these people ocean swimming and it looks amazing because it is amazing. Maybe surfing similar. But often people will get out and they have panic attacks in the water. Yeah. And they really freak out. And loads of people have told me that story of where they've taken someone for a swim and the person's really freaked out and they've had to get them back in. Yeah. And it's really frightening for everyone. And we underestimate it. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we're so vulnerable. And so that's kind of what I'm really looking at. So when I talk about these like sharks and depth and waves and things like that, what I'm really thinking about is how it makes me feel my humanity so deeply yeah and it makes me feel like really part of that place it makes me feel fragile and like i'm using this theorist val plumwood and um she had a she got nearly killed by a crocodile so her work came from that experience and she says in that moment she realized she was part of the feast not separate from it right yeah (laughs) that's the title yeah and yeah (laughs) and that's what i like that's what i feel when i swim is so if I'm going to paddle out or swim out, I decide to accept them part of the feast, not separate from it. I think you have to though. Like I swam last night, and certainly wasn't. Again, there's no sharks around, like or anything like that. But I had to fully make myself do it. You know, if I'm thinking about it honestly, like so I did probably like a two and a half k swim, like sea swim last night, and you know it was about six o'clock at night. It was a bit overcast. It was a bit moody. You know, I was I was the only person there, and I fully was like, st- even then, you know, I'm pretty experienced now, really. But even like at one point, the same thing was fairly far out, and was like, certainly f- took a moment to appreciate the fact I was quite vulnerable, mm. and and like had to have a bit of a word with myself. Really, I think that's kind of part of it. Really, I certainly get that in big surf. Definitely, well, you know, big for me surf. Let's but say. that's the thing where we are asking those questions, right? So we we sort of take it for granted that we're paddling out, making those decisions, but we are making those decisions. Yeah, no, it's time. why it's so interesting because I think it's quite subconscious for most people, isn't it? It's almost mm. like part of the part of the package that you don't really consider, especially mm. because again, to bring it back to like the the other strand of your work, like the exterior way that this is presented in media for example is very much not this it's very much not about vulnerability it's very much not about um asking this type of question Mm -mm. and if you even dare to show that kind of vulnerability or weakness then especially as a woman then you um are you're at the wrong end of the culture well even as a learner like i think there's no bigger crime in surfing than to be a beginner to be a kook like val well i mean i (laughs) that That is quite funny though yeah i mean like, so I learned to surf in my mid-twenties. Me too. Yeah. And it, and I learned to surf at the pass in Byron Bay where everyone's, you know, been surfing their whole life. But what's funny is I grew up, my mum was the account keeper in a surfboard factory. Right. Like a surf company. And so I used to spend after school there from when I was seven, you know, through a teenager. And I had so many op- offers like, we'll teach you to surf, we'll take you out. But how I knew surfing was through surf magazines. Yeah. And in that, it's like so aggressive and hardcore and everyone's good at it. And the truth is when you get out there, not that many people are that good at it, actually. Like people are fine. And so 
what I realized was when I speak at events, like the radical thing to admit is I'm an okay surfer. Like I'm competent. Yeah. I'm fine at surfing. But, but that's the, like people that's will the turn truth. away from you then. Yeah. You don't get Well, them. all people are empowered by that, I think. Like mm. these days, latterly, these days. I mean, I was just a guest on a, a podcast called the UK Surf Show. And it was cool. They're lo- lovely lads, the two presenters. And they very much make it an accessible place. They're, they're very much not that kind of, you know, mm. ma- matchery surf culture thing. But I was pretty open, you know, describe myself as like an intermediate surfer. And they, w- they were quite like, oh, you know, he's admitted it kind of thing. And I was a bit like, yeah, but that's just the deal. Like, that mo- is 90% of people who surf. Most people that I know are not very good at surfing, no, you know, and yeah. they've all got like 10 surfboards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like there's how many other let's, sports or activities would you be like chased out of for not being good at, for having a go at? Like this, it always surprises me in surfing. It makes me so angry. And this is why I just don't surf much anymore. Like the people who are best at it get to decide everything about the culture of surfing. They get to decide who's going to get waves in a lineup. They get to decide who's going to get yelled at and told to go in. They get to decide, you know, who has value and who doesn't, whose opinion counts. And I just think that's horrendous. Like, why do they get to choose? Because they've had, they've had more opportunities or they started when they were younger and, you know, they got pushed into waves as a kid. I learned it as a 26-year-old woman who, like, had to learn on her own. I didn't have a boyfriend pushing me into waves or I didn't have a dad doing that. You know, I had to figure that out. And it's the hardest thing I've ever learned to do. And I'm really proud of myself because it's embarrassing, right? You are, you're a Gumby and your top's falling off and, you know, you, you look like a kook because you've got a terrible stance and like all these things, you're losing your board and you're getting in the way. And it's just, oh, it's the worst learning to surf in lots of ways. And so because I did that, I have so much respect for anyone who learns to surf. And I try now not to look at, like, the lineup out past me, like, who's, who's before me. I try to look behind me about who is behind me not getting waves. And I am no angel in the surf. Like, I don't want anyone to think I'm claiming that because I can be a real bitch in the surf too. But I do try and, like, just challenge myself on on how things are done, like how does the lineup work and why does it have to be that way? Like, why does the best person get all the ways? Why? Well, That's I mean, that was, that was the question <laughs> I was going to ask you. Like you said, you know, you, you, why do you think it is? Because they can. And actually someone who I won't name, who is a very, very good surfer said to me, I'll always get the most waves because I'm best at surfing. And I just looked at him and was like, but you've had more waves in your life than I I'll never catch up to that. Like, why do you care if I get one shitty wave? And and sometimes in lineups, I just sit there and see, because it's always the same person. And it only takes one person, right, to, to be like that. And it's just such a bummer. And what I've really liked about swimming is that can't happen. No one can take your swim away from you. No one can block you from having an encounter or feeling how delightful the water is you know whereas in surfing if you go out and you don't get a wave you feel pretty crappy yeah yeah i I get that i I was speaking to a friend of mine today who was saying he's gotten really into mountain biking and he was like he's a good surfer and he was like i kind of prefer it to surfing these days Mm. and he said something like because i know i'll always have a good time like i know like whereas when i go surfing sometimes i'll come out and be in a bad mood because i've had an argument with somebody or like blah but i think i've made this point on here to the point that people I imagine listen to this <laughs> regularly would be quite bored of it but I think my problem with surf th- this kind of surf cu- culture per se like I, I obviously get the cultural arguments I get I get the kind of um, you know I get what the point is supposed to be of like pecking order and hierarchy and you know, the safety arguments and obviously a lot of that is there's some common sense in a lot of that um, you know you do need to manage a lineup in some way and you do need to like blah 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 i, I can buy that you're obviously looking very skeptical but yeah if but you can hear eye rolls then you're hearing them i'm just a bit, 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 <laughs> bit of balance before i say what i want to say though which is that i think my problem is that like most surf scenes or environments like they just don't need that you know like yes. when i when i when i look at my local scene there's not even a there's not even a peak you know, it's like, mm. it's like windswell, it's mm-hmm. English channel windswell. Okay. Like it, and it's a lottery where, where, where the wave's going to break. Mm. It's not like, the, it's not like a point break, you know, where you, where you can queue up. Yeah. So 
immediately that kind of renders redundant a lot of the kind of infrastructure of surf culture but mm. everyone well not everyone but a lot of people down there still do the do the local thing mm. and the only reason they're really doing it it's not is because they think that's what you do if you're a surfer mm. like it's literally why they're doing it you know there's no there's mm. not actually any like thought about like well do we have to is this the right thing to do do you know I what don't i mean know. i mean i think the local thing like i mean people will do it in all spaces so through covid i looked at facebook i'm obsessed with facebook community pages because they're just so interesting <laughs> um and horrible sometimes but the blow-ups on there about how people were using spaces incorrectly during the pandemic because there were all these newcomers to their parks or whatever and they're yeah. like oh, well, you know, they never came to this park and now they're running and they're running wrong. <laughs> like, you know, they were so pissed that there were people there that hadn't been there before. And so, like, I'm really interested in that kind of, like, who has the right to decide how a yeah, space is Yeah, I mean, that's how you're looking at this, isn't it? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and Well, and also, you, I think if I'm right, you're looking at it in terms of, like, the toxic perceptions that can arise from that as well like in terms of like how people find their space in in communities and also like how they might be driven away from it and like you know particularly for women you know essentially it makes it it makes it more difficult and it means that women are represented in a certain way right which is yeah so my work all started it's feminist and so I was really interested in how does patriarchy (laughs) affect especially women but also men you know, so how does it, or all genders, so how does it affect everyone? And um, I was focused on women. And localism was one of those things that really came out in a way because there's traditional ways that you become local and they're through time spent in the lineup and maybe skills that you have or family connections and, you know, this kind of thing. So if women are newcomers to surfing culture because they've been kept out by cultural processes, surf magazines or people just not letting them surf and you know when I talked to women who tried surf in the 70s and they didn't have a license and their partner their male partner literally wouldn't drive them to the beach to surf with with him like these kind of stories or people just making it men just making it impossible for women to surf they were also then removed from these rights to a surf break as well so it's not just about being a newcomer to surfing as a practice there's all this other stuff that comes with it that then it's taken you know a couple of generations of women surfing now um, in order to build up those kinds of uh, statuses at places and now like I surf at some places and women are being kind of crappy to newcomers as well so it's not that I think it's just men I think that it's like just these bad exclusive processes because we all like to belong and we all like to have feel like we've got some way to speak for our place and that can be a good thing I'm sure but when it's wielded over someone and when you know we claim that we know best we should always be skeptical of ourselves and our right to speak for a place um and I guess like once I started thinking like that and and a lot of that was reading you know um research by especially Aboriginal Australian women and and people um which then is pointing out that that's quite a colonial mindset as well um is that you get to move in and just speak for a place that that used to be someone else's place and and now we you know there's layered with gentrification and there's kind of ways to go off in that but I decided to give up my right to speak for places um, because I have a really strong relationship to my hometown, which is really busy. And I didn't like how I was feeling about my own right to speak for it. So I did a lot of personal kind of work on that to give up, to give that up and make sure that when I thought about how that place should be or could be accessed and could be used, and that includes in the surf, it was a radical shift in my thinking. Like really, it was a big radical change for me. Was that, it must have been quite a difficult thing to, almost, I'm, I'm going to use the word concede then, like as if it was a negative, do you know what I mean? Even that language is is, is quite freighted, isn't it? Because I'm, mm. I'm seeing that as like you're giving up something, but it sounds like it's more positive for you. Yeah, I mean, well, it was a giving up. And, and part of it is about people who have power need to give up that power in order to allow other people. Yeah, to but that's a, that, that's a fundamentally as you've, 
you've pointed out across not just surfing like every single like that's a fundamentally difficult thing for human beings to do isn't it absolutely territorial it's just seems to go well this again is your research isn't it i'd be really interested to understand your view on it but it just seems to be something that's hardwired into us to a degree right yeah i mean the thing is i can still care about my my hometown and my place and have a really deep relationship to it and want to take care of it and want to see it looked after and thrive but it means that I'm more likely, I hope, <laughs> you know, I hope I am more likely to want to hear from a diverse range of people. Yeah. And that includes traditional owners, that includes long-term um, local, like, sorry, sort of like local, I'm thinking of white people when I say local, which yeah. is funny, settler residents. And, you know, my hometown's very white in its population, so it's not very multicultural. So, like, who's being left out of conversations about the beach there as well? Um, so, yeah, I think... When I think about localism, that's actually what I think about. So I think surf localism is actually a much, it's an example of a much bigger problem in the world. Yeah. And and that's like, when we do research, that's what it is. So when I research women surfing, I'm just researching a case study of something that's a much bigger problem yeah. more broadly. So yeah, localism for me has become a fundamental question across all of my projects always about, and it's a question of, who am I not seeing when I talk about place in yeah. my projects? Does any of does that? It make makes sense? total sense, and it's fascinating because essentially you're using your interest to to examine these wider cultural, societal. I was going to say problems again, but it's not even problems. It's just it's just the way things are to a degree. But like phenomena, like behaviour, you know, like which is quite. A, I mean, is, has it been easy for you to to use your position to do that? Is it a tough sell? like in in the you know like in academia to sort of use these topics to explore these ideas as you've just described because because um, it, it's it's even more niche than what i do which is <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty niche i mean i think i've been pretty lucky like people have really connected with it and i think in part that feels like time's right as well maybe yeah maybe i mean when i started researching women surfing there wasn't a lot there was uh georgina roy it turns out was doing her phd on women surfing at the same time i mean we didn't as me and we didn't know each other um margaret henderson had done a lot of research on tracks magazine which is really interesting um she looked at the archives and she looked she did that research in like the late 90s so that works amazing um and clifton evers was doing his stuff on men surfing um but yeah, there wasn't a lot happening and now there is a lot happening. So I guess I was looking at it early on. But when you broaden it out and go, because people go, well, you're studying surfing, so what? And you go, well, it's not just about surfing. It's about relationships to place. It's about sexism. It's about media representations. It's about who gets funded, you know. It's about like all these other things. Then they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and also surfing's really photogenic. So it's really pretty to yeah. talk about. And so I think I have an aesthetic advantage when you sort of showing what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> you, and what quite an on the nose question, but what are you hoping to influence with it? With my current project? That's a really good question. I mean, yes. Yeah, so they're really interesting ideas, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're really, and you know, like all good ideas, they're like, or like all good insights, should I say, you know, like there's been a couple of things you said today where I've really been like, oh yeah, like that is, it's illuminating, you know, like, and it makes you look at s certainly things that I do every week and take for granted to a certain degree mm. in in a new, you know, in a new light. And that's mm. valuable. That has, that has real value. Like, mm. and, and obviously you've done some stuff where you've had essays published in like surf mm. media and that kind of thing. Like, but I just, yeah, like what's the kind of, obviously you're interested in it obviously you've got a great platform with with the work that you're doing as a research fellow it's at melbourne uni right rmit which yeah, is stands for royal melbourne institute of technology i think so i don't know you, so no you've got it. you've got these great platforms through which to explore these ideas mm. and but obviously acad academia it's, it's a particular audience isn't it so what what, what what's the sort mm. of okay so this is very interesting <laughs> so my work's in feminist cultural studies which so it's a feminist version of cultural studies and um in case people don't know what cultural studies is well maybe i should yeah cultural studies is the study of everyday cultural life and cultural studies really my version of cultural studies really started in the 
the UK some years ago, long time ago. And in part, it was rejecting, it was a class thing. It was, it was questioning how we folk, we call opera and literature culture when right. actually football is more meaningful to most of the population or yeah. now now we can say going to a cafe or going surfing so why weren't these things of value to study so cultural studies is the study of everyday life feminism is about making that political instantly i think cultural studies is political anyway but it's a particular way so you're always starting from a particular place and that's why I'll say it's feminist cultural studies because it helps people understand where I'm coming from. I think it's probably important to say at the moment too that feminism for me is, you know, it's starting with the oppression of women, but that's not the end because it has to be inclusive of sexuality. It has to be inclusive of race and colonization and and men, you know. So when I talk about feminism, I'm not using that to be exclusive about you know, a particular group of people, it's actually radically inclusive, my version. The other thing that's important about both feminism and cultural studies separately is that for me, my understanding of those things is that they're a verb, that they have to be activist. And I am not a researcher who thinks that any of us have any objectivity. I don't think that I can be apolitical. And I know you've talked about, like you hate that in sport, where go keep politics out of sport like it's possible. Um, yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. And it's for me... In academia, I feel a responsibility that my work has to somehow contribute back to the people and the communities and cultures I'm studying. So that's like the first point to make there. So when you're studying culture, I'm not studying organized. So I don't really like professional surfing and competitive surfing is not my jam. I really find it boring. Um, So I'm studying people like us who just surf for fun so how do you make change to that like how do you change culture so that's why I started focusing on media stuff like writing blogs and you know whatever I was doing at that time and and I was lucky early on because I had um, met Clifton Evers and Stu Nettle, who's at Swellnet, and um, Alex Leonard and Dina Eldersuki had together co-founded an online magazine and they brought me in as a contributing editor essentially so I got my hand in on blogging and writing and developed a way of writing that was trying to communicate with community because exactly as you say academic writing could be just heinous like oh my god like academics find it heinous too don't worry (laughs) but if it can't communicate if I can't communicate my ideas to the people they're about then I feel like I'm not doing my job yeah and so in my head it's like I'm really just trying to change how people behave like oh, that's actually not the right no I'm trying to get them to think differently and to make the choice in how they're behaving to not just do things because that's how things are done yeah and I then understand. to take responsibility for that I suppose so I guess I'm try- I sort of say I'm not trying to change people's minds I'm trying to change them in their bones like I'm trying to go like I don't know maybe that's arrogant no, I don't think so. I think it, I think it's just it's just a different. I mean, I was uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Why like else it, do we write and make things? Well, exactly. Yeah. It's like every everybody everybody has everybody wants to achieve that in some way. Let's put it that way. Like what and how that manifests itself. You know, it's why people make art. It's why people make podcasts. <laughs> it's like you know, you got a point yeah. of view. You got an idea. You want to. You know, like, we're, we're, we're all guilty of that, I think. Um, yeah, and I, I don't just write every thought I have. Like, I, I try and be very careful and make meaningful contributions to the discussions that are happening. But you're also a bit of a shit stirrer, like, in a- the nicest I? possible way. Like, oh. I, no, I mean that, I mean that in, in the, I mean, I don't mean that as an insult in the slightest. What I mean is, like, you, you know, you, I think with our, with our views on these things obviously we've got a lot of common ground on the way we view this stuff really which is why we've ended up becoming friends like and having these conversations and i think we both recognize that there is a there is something to push there there's 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 a little there's mm. room to push it and there's room to ask questions and there's room to sort of say like you know like well is that should is that the right is that the best way we could do this yeah or is there another option i mean it's exactly. interesting because exactly. my approach to activism there's lots of ways to do things and you can be shouty and like shout a lot and just say you suck and I guess maybe sometimes I do that but mostly like when I started out with the women surfing stuff I was trying to talk to men um not women women 
I was talking to women, but women got what I was saying. I didn't need to change their minds on things. I was trying to talk to guys in the lineup to say, hey, you're being kind of crappy. Like, you know, maybe just think about this for a second about how you're making this so hard for people. So, but if I shout at them all the time, that's not going to work. So although I've been critiqued for this approach to my feminism, my thing is how can I bring someone along with me with the ideas? So I try and even in my writing, it's often more gentle than I feel <laughs> because I want people to be able to go willing, being willing to listen to me. Yeah. And if you're just shouting at someone all the time, which we have every right, people have the right to shout and especially black women get that thrown at them all the time, right? Oh, you're just an angry black woman. And of course they should be pissed off. Like they should be angry and they should have the right to shout. But for me, that wasn't going to work. Like, so there's different ways around this. So yeah, I tried to bring people along, I guess, with the ideas and it doesn't mean I agree with them and it doesn't mean I'm going to concede to their point of view, but we have to have these conversations because my conclusions that I've reached are just the conclusions I've reached. And we change our minds along the way. Like I didn't always think like this, you know, and so I've got mentors who laugh and go, I remember when you used to say this and, you know, (laughs) I've really changed my thinking a lot and it will continue to change. So, you know, you have to be welcoming to let people come along. I mean, if I see someone being, really sexist or racist or homophobic then I'm probably going to have something to say about that but when I ride I try not to be too shouty sometimes I'm just shouty <laughs> every so often yeah just but it's so like frustrated I, I you know draw a circle and bring people into it rather than keep them out on the mm. outside of it I don't think I always succeed I mean but you you're not going to reach everyone right like you're not going to I mean, there's going to be those people who just think I'm the worst and get call me a feminazi and have a go and... Yeah, well, they're never going to change their thinking, so not, I'm not talking to them. No, they're not serious You're talking to the people who are interested to, in, in thinking. And, and, like, my job is to think, like, to read and think, right? So that's really lucky. Like, I have the luxury of having being paid to do that. And that's why it's really important. Like, researchers, their job is to ask questions that are relevant to the people the questions are about, and then to kind of create some knowledge around that. And so if I don't share that back with the community, then I don't think I'm doing my job. So what, what's next? Like you've got a couple, you know, there's been two, the, the two broad themes we've, we've talked about. Mm. Representation and, you know, relationship to space. Let's, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, what's the kind of time frame for these research projects then? Mm. So this one that I'm doing is, th- was three years funding. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately it happened in the middle of COVID. So I didn't get to do all the field work, but the funding's kind of rolled over a bit. So that's what part of this is. Then fellowship I've just started at RMIT is four years and that's going to be on starting to look at rivers, yeah, which are kind of an extension of the coast, right? And so thinking about the same idea, like if people, there's this big movement around people wanting to swim in rivers, like people want to swim in the Thames now and, and uh, in Paris, they're saying they want people to swim in the Seine for the Olympics by the Olympics. Those rivers are really dirty. So if they want people, and this is where it comes back to like, people want to swim in it because it feels really good. That means we have to take care of the river. Yeah. And I think that's like super powerful idea. So that's really exciting. And there is a big move around rivers across lots of countries. Like, you know, um, Aotearoa, New Zealand has given rivers rights. Yeah, that was recent, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's other countries that have done that. I think maybe Bolivia gave um, rivers rights. So there's there's like shifts and that's at a policy level, (laughs) let alone a community level. So yeah, there's really big changes. And I feel really lucky that I get to look at this stuff and and be part of the conversations. And I'm, I learned so much, like you interview loads of people, right? Like you learn so much from these conversations. Yeah, it's the best part of doing it. It's amazing. Yeah. And you just get, and if you are willing to listen and listen to ideas that maybe challenge you. Yeah. And I, you know, I talk to lots of different people whose ideas really challenge me. Then yeah, you, you learn heaps. And so I sort of figure that out to communicate back. So yeah, so I've been really lucky to have a bunch of time to really sorry about the water language but immerse myself in these projects about water yeah but like you know you said oh you've you've had people go oh, i remember when you said this that and the other but that's kind of the point isn't it forward movement learning changing your opinions oh absolutely it's kind of 
I think that's required personally. Oh my, if I think, if I was the same person now in my 40s that I was when I was 16 or 21, oh God, I mean, no one would want to be that person, would they? No, no, exactly. <laughs> hey, that was great. Thank oh. you. Oh. Yeah, it was really good. Should we go have a pint? Yes. Is that going to kill your jet lag? No, yes. <laughs> Let's do it. Half four, pint o'clock. <laughs> So there you go. That was me and Rebecca and I hope you enjoyed it. It was really great meeting Rebecca in real life, as I believe the kids call it, for the first time. And yes, we did go for a pint afterwards and have a proper catch up. Um, Yeah, who knew meeting Instagram friends in real life um, is good fun. Shocker. Um, Not sure that's always the case, but uh, that was a nice life affirming little episode that. Anyway, you can find Rebecca over on Instagram at Moving Oceans. Um, and find her website which contains all the work and her own podcast at movingoceans.com and I highly recommend it. All right, thanks for listening to this episode and for supporting Type 2 generally. You probably know by now, but I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so through my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the usual podcast purveyors. Uh, You can also find the entire Type 2 back catalogue and the entire archive of my main Looking Sideways podcast um, over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You can also sign up to my newsletter, um, which is uh, currently increasing in popularity by clicking the tab mark Substack. Um, and having to read it, all the stuff on there, there's quite a lot to get stuck into. So uh, let me know what you think. All right. Nice one. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.